0: Hello, welcome to another episode of In the Know. Um, I'm joined today by Susan Weber. My name's David Stone. Super excited to be back for another episode, and uh, we have we have a I guess you could say surprise today. We have a special guest, the very Yay! first on the In the Know podcast series. We're joined today by by Barry Dunn's very own Lindsay Francis, Senior Manager in the Financial Services Practice Group, um, focusing on information technology. Lindsay, you want to give a brief intro and hello to the to the folks on the call today?
1: Thanks so much, David and Susan, for having me. I am a senior manager with the firm, as you said. I have been with the firm for about eleven and a half years now, and I do focus on information technology internal controls.
0: Awesome. Well, super excited to have you here today, and we have a we have a few things that we got to get through. We'll we'll try to speed through them, and then we'll we'll have a a riveting conversation with you, Lindsay. I'm sure. So, so I guess to, to start off today, Susan, I mean, as, as we do with every episode, we'll kind of give a, a brief update from the quarterly banking profile, take a look at some ASUs, um, and then a couple other topics we'll cover. So, so starting with the quarterly banking profile, um, I guess to, to start, you know, this is the, the third quarter release for the FDIC, third quarter 2023. And community banks quarterly net income, it actually decreased a whopping fifteen percent from third quarter 2022. So certainly not the news that, that we want to be seeing or hearing, but this is this is the reality we live in, and I I, I don't think necessarily comes as any surprise. Um, and and just to just to provide another stat on net income. So more than half, so 55% of all community banks reported a decline in net income compared to second quarter 2023 as well. So so seeing that that quarter over quarter decline as well as decline year over year in net income. And and likely to no surprise, I, I found this stat you know just fascinating, but um you know that the yield on earning assets increased 21 basis points from second quarter 2023, but 110 basis points um, increased from a year ago. From a year ago, and then the the cost of funds increased by 25 basis points from second quarter 2023, or 138 basis points from the third quarter 2022. So some some pretty pretty phenomenal numbers there. Susan. And, and again, we we hear about it. We, we see it in the news. But, you know, sometimes numbers really put things into perspective.
2: For sure. And I'm not sure I would um, want to say phenomenal when it comes to that cost of funds number, but um, <laughs> sure, definitely, yeah. definitely something that um, we know that our banking partners have been um, struggling with, uh, not struggling, but just been facing, you know, challenges they've been faced with all year long. And um, we're starting to definitely see it play out in the data uh, for sure. Were there any other surprises or any other key points that you thought from that um, survey, that that quarterly banking update, David, that you thought were really important to highlight?
0: Yeah, yeah. What, one other thing I'll mention, Susan, and, and again, you know, we provide a a summary of the quarterly banking profile. So Mm -hmm. certainly be on the lookout for that. And I mean, all these stats will be included in there, but uh, the coverage ratio, coverage Mm -hmm. ratio has been something that we've been talking about for, I mean, years now, you know, during the the COVID pandemic, you kind of saw that, that spike in the coverage ratio as, you know, non-accrual loans, you know, came down, but then reserve balances maybe Mm -hmm. were inflated due to the pandemic. well, that coverage ratio actually decreased 21% in third quarter 23 um, from, from uh, second quarter 23 and, and 26% from third quarter 22. Now, I, I should note this isn't necessarily because reserve levels are coming down. It's actually because non-current loan balances, you know, hence non-accrual loans, um, balances are, are increasing. Hence, Mm. hence the, you know, the compression on that uh, coverage ratio. So so again, not necessarily because reserve balances are coming down, um, but we are seeing the coverage ratio decline, which is something we haven't haven't necessarily seen in in a while
2: not at all. In fact, for, for many quarters, we were tracking this increase, you know, as it was coming into, um, Cecil adoption, because we were kind of thinking about what that might look like. And I know in a little while, we'll talk a little bit about debt levels in the United States in general, but, um, these trends, you know, definitely we have heard that there may be some stress coming and maybe we're starting to see some, some aspects of this probably still, um, somewhat geographical in nature, I would say, you know, I've been, um, talking to a lot of folks across the industry and in places in the U.S. and not everybody is being um, impacted in the same way, you know, that's that's pretty typically true. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean the sky is falling, but it definitely is um, important that people stay on top of whatever it is that um, that's happening in their portfolios because they it, there is no doubt that some people are seeing a shift.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, so, so now you know. I'll turn our attention to uh, just the accounting standards front. You know, my my favorite topic. Uh, surprise, surprise! And you know, <laughs> again, another another fairly quiet quarter from the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. They did issue one ASU on reportable segment disclosures. Um, however, this ASU is just for public business entities, so uh, you know a, a a bit narrower of a focus than you know, some of these larger ASUs that that cover every entity, regardless of public versus private, Um, but did just want to throw that out there, you know, for the public uh, companies on the call today um, that, that this ASU may impact your reporting of segment disclosures uh, going forward. So, so certainly if there's, you know, if there's any questions or you want more info on that, definitely reach out to us either directly or via the, the Ask the Advisor feature. On, on our website.
2: I will just go ahead maybe and just mention, David, that I've had a lot of questions in the last few weeks about um, the new loan modifications oh, sure. disclosure yeah. and, and that ASU that came out um, actually last year, right? It was 2022-02, I think yep, is the correct. reference. Yep. Um, and so that's in, in full force now. So um, we may wanna just link to this um, podcast at the end. Um, the information that we provided um, earlier in the year on on those changes, so that people will have that as a reference, because um, you know the, that's the one that did away with TDR accounting and and those language pieces. And I think people we're still seeing that um, some of that has not uh, fully been adopted yet by by institutions. And so just making sure that there's good clarity as we're coming up on year end disclosure and reporting.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's a great point, you know, as we've started to, we meaning that the auditors here at Barry Dunn have started, you know, working through our interim audit procedures and really uh, looking under the hood of these Cecil calculations and trying to be proactive going into year end. Um, you're right, there's been a lot of discussion over the new Loan modification rules and disclosure requirements and, and rightfully so because it it is a pretty significant change um, certainly overshadowed by by Cecil and and that significant change but um, <laughs> still still a big change in and of itself so um yeah we'll definitely provide a link we have some great resources available on the website um, to help folks navigate those new requirements great awesome another topic that caught my attention recently uh, Benson, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, they, they recently provided an alert. And by recent, I mean on November 22nd. Oh. Um, and this alert is in regards to the employee retention credit, specifically the fraud around the credit. And, you know, I mean, the, the ERC, as it's typically referred to, has, has been all over the news, um, not just in the accounting industry, you know, even just the the, the, the popular news. Um you know, as being ripe with fraud, unfortunately, and, and, you know, the FinCEN alert actually mentions that to date, the, uh, IRS's criminal investigation division, uh, you know, said that they've, they've seen or or had 323 investigations involving more than $2.8 billion of potentially fraudulent ERC claims. Um, and, and that's, you know, so, I mean, that, that's a huge dollar amount to start, but that's spanning tax years, 2020 through 2023. So not only is it a huge dollar amount, but, um, you know, it spans several years, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty small time period in the grand scheme of things that we've seen $2.8 billion of potentially fraudulent claims. So, um, why, why does this matter to banks? You know, why, why did Vincent issue this alert? Well, what the alert does is it provides some red flags for banks to look out for um, in dealing with their, their customers. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of the red flags, there's there's nine of them in total. Certainly check out the alert for the full list and, and there's a bunch of other info as well within the alert, but you know, I, I did want to point out a few. So. You know, a red flag of ERC fraud could be that small business accounts receive an ERC check deposit that's maybe not commensurate with their um, with their business, whether that be you know their level of employees or volume of transactions. Um, another one is you know maybe there's an account that you have at your institution uh, where there's no other deposits in that account but treasury issued checks. Um, could that be a red flag uh, th- this alert indicates that that it, it would be a red flag. Then lastly, you know, maybe you have some dormant business accounts that suddenly receive an ERC check deposit. Um, that That's another red flag that that's mentioned in this alert. And again, these are red flags does not necessarily mean that this is definitely fraudulent activity. But these are things that institutions should be monitoring, um, you know, in in the day to day monitoring activities that, that you're partaking in. So just wanted to mention that Um, again, relatively recent alert from FinCEN on the ERC.
2: Absolutely. It'll be interesting to you to see if there are any consequences, you know, that That come from um, some of that activity, and certainly we we don't hope that any of our um, you know banking clients or credit union clients are caught up in any of that. But um, at the same time, you know, it is a cautionary tale to be on the the lookout for that. You know, as as uh, they've banked these various folks, and there might be some of this activity that has some consequence um, that could impact other aspects of their business relationship with the institution. So always good to to be. This is uh, not a very rosy in the kind of seasonal <laughs> message that I'm hearing us give, you know, our folks today on the phone, because we're gonna move right from that into um, an article about uh, the increasing consumer debt <laughs> that's out there. But um, I did think it was uh, worth a mention. Uh, Bloomberg and others have covered this too. But um, last month, uh, some new data came out on uh, US household debt. Uh, and what they're finding is obviously it's uh, hit a new record high. Um, these numbers are so astronomical, they almost don't even sound real. But one of the key components of this is that consumers under the age of 50, uh, the change in that debt has really uh, been the main driver for the overall change in the U.S. household debt. And one of the things that I thought was really incredible is since the pandemic and i'm going to quote right from this bloomberg article but since the pandemic younger consumers have added close to 2.1 trillion in debt while older americans added 900 billion so the younger consumers have added at a rate of twice um, the older and the reason this is uh something to watch is because um when you think about rising interest rates you think about carrying higher debt loads um you know when at times of high inflation or uncertainty in the economy, if recession and, and I think everybody now is sort of getting to the point of maybe soft landing next year and not a full out recession. But regardless, as those shifts in the economy occur, the question is, is there enough resilience and liquidity that these that these consumers have that will act as a sufficient buffer? And there and in some cases lack of experience in these economic ebbs and flows uh, in the marketplace and what they're actually adding or choosing to add in terms of debt. You know, some of it's mortgage, some of it's credit card. Um, Certainly student loan is a big one. Um, New auto is another one. Um, You know, these are all going to be things that, um, you know, consumers and institutions may have to deal with um, over the course of the next six to 12 months. To your point earlier about some of those asset quality changes happening, um, I, my suspicion is that some of that geographically is happening uh, relative to um, real estate trends, um, not all, but probably some. And But this is definitely the consumer piece is definitely one to be watching as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that, Susan. And and to your point, at at the top of that segment, you know, I almost opened up our podcast today, today, just saying how much <laughs> I love this time of year, you know, the holidays. <laughs> and um, but I, I thought against it given our um our list of topics today. So <laughs>
2: And and ho ho ho, let's move right into cybersecurity. <laughs>
0: Yes yes, so um yeah I think I think that's enough of us rambling Susan let's uh we'll, we'll get to our star attraction uh today Lindsay Francis I'm so happy to to have you here today and we have a, a few questions you know that we'll we'll chat about and we'll we'll see where the conversation takes us um so I, I guess to start, you know, I, I know you work with a lot of financial institutions, as you mentioned, looking at information technology controls, testing those controls. Um, what trends are you seeing in the IT space for financial institutions? If, if you know, that's even a fair question, because this is such a hot area.
1: Yeah, so there are a lot of different topics. Um, one of the big ones that's growing a lot of traction is um, new reg tech platforms. Mm. So, regulatory technology has grown out of the fintech environment. And the primary purpose and why it's called reg tech to separate itself from fintech is that um, these systems are focused on regulatory reporting, whether that is related to financial crime, know your customer processes, compliance monitoring. um, And then there are also some subsets that are related to ESG and digital asset compliance. And so there are a lot of different Software applications out there, um, we're talking in the hundreds, that are using AI to help financial institutions um, look at new ways for fraud, uh, fraud prevention, um, account management, um, you know, monitoring that they are meeting their regulatory requir- requirements.
0: Mm, yeah, that, you know, I, I've, I've heard the term reg tech before, but I really appreciate you kind of diving into that and, and sharing some more. And, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned monitoring that kind of ties into the discussion earlier on the ERC red flags. You know, that's that has everything to do with monitoring, you know, depositor activity and just looking for that that suspicious um, activity. Now, now, where where do you think we are with RegTech? Like, is, is this more so just on, on the forefront of kind of getting into the industry? Are there any set expectations yet, or, or are we still kind of navigating that?
1: So it really depends on the institution um, and kind of the environment that they are participating in. We have seen these kinds of, of platforms um, within our customer base. Some of them are, you know, more advanced than others. Certainly when it comes to monitoring for fraud activity, some of these have been in place for a number of years um, and using AI for a number of years to to monitor for that suspicious activity. Um, And then certainly kind of on the newer end, it are those um, platforms that are looking at about um, ESG compliance um, or just measuring your ESG against your own goals. And then um, certainly the digital assets with, with crypto, um, that is... Not as common um, that we have seen, but certainly has a lot of space to grow as more institutions are, are looking at incorporating digital assets.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you you mentioned you mentioned artificial intelligence a, a few times already. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate. I, I know that's another you know buzz topic. Are, are there any other ways that you're seeing? Financial institutions incorporate AI into their day to day activities. I know you mentioned that the monitoring and um, uh, of account activity, but, but anything else that our listeners should be aware of?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways to use AI to enhance customer service, um, especially around account management, you know, using chat bots to help answer customer questions Mm. that are, you know, relatively straightforward. Um, some account management changes that are, you know, relatively easy to be able to explain using a, a chat bot and kind of help them with changing personal information. Um, you know, arranging automatic payments, those kinds of, um, transactional um those kinds of um interactions
0: yeah yeah i find that i find that fascinating you know that the use of chatbots and, and ai to to conduct some of these what seem to be basic you know transactions like you said you know just changing some some information on your account um yeah, you know, I I think that that's kind of the low hanging fruit. And I, I can't wait to see what this blossoms into um, and how it's used by by financial institutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are so many opportunities. Um, some of the challenges, you know, are trying to integrate these things into legacy systems. Sometimes those can connect uh, relatively smoothly. And other times you've got to kind of build something custom to be able to get those two systems to talk to each other. And then, of course, when you're talking about implementing new vendors, you always want to consider, you know, what are the due diligence uh, responsibilities on on the financial institution and to make sure that uh, these new vendors have good controls in place, especially around regulatory requirements.
0: Mm. I always like to say you can outsource the function, but you can't outsource the responsibility, right? Exactly. Our responsibility always lives at the institution. So, um, yeah, this is a great great point, Lindsay. So, uh, Su- Susan mentioned at at the top of this section, uh, she gave a, a little teaser on cybersecurity, and uh, I, I think it I think it's time we dive into that that topic. Um, so I mean it it certainly can, continues to be of utmost importance, you know, cybersecurity programs at institutions. And what what should our listeners be honing in on with with this topic? Are there a few things that, that you can kind of narrow down to?
1: Yeah, so something that has been in the news recently that probably a lot of our listeners have heard about was the the ransomware attack on several credit unions and um, that went through a, a third party vendor, unfortunately. And so something to think about is when you're doing your disaster recovery planning and disaster recovery testing, have you considered that that part of the equation where if your vendor is not available anymore, what's your plan then? Because we see a lot of institutions that work with their vendors to create their disaster recovery plan, and that's part of their annual test every year. Is It's, it's a combination of what are the, the financial institutions' controls and responsibilities during that DR testing and what are the vendors' controls and responsibilities during that testing but I think this really highlights the importance of considering what if that vendor and their controls are just not available for a a number of reasons and ransomware just happens to be one of them. So considering a more in-depth look of, of the disaster recovery process and testing.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Great, great point. And, um, yeah I mean to to me that that's one of the, the the scarier scarier things you know just these ransomware attacks and just i mean any tips on on how to prevent ransomware attacks, whether it be you know not not so much there's only so much you can do for your third parties, but just you know a ransomware attack on a a, a specific institution you know what what are some good prevention tools there?
1: Yeah, so it it definitely is a a scary thing to happen. And in, in this particular case, there were some patches that hadn't been applied that probably should have been applied to the systems. And so that is something where within your own organization, you're looking at operating system patches on a timely basis to find out is this something that you need to apply to your system have you tested it before you apply it but you know that you're not waiting months and months to kind of take a review and figure out all right maybe we should have implemented this by now Um, and this is something else that you can look for when you're doing your vendor due diligence as well Many vendors have either a SOC 1 or SOC 2 report that probably mentions whether or not that external firm tested to find out if they're applying patches on a timely basis. And if that isn't included in the SOC report or some other kind of documentation that your vendor provides, then ask the question, You know, what is your patching policy? How often are you doing it to kind of get get ahead of um,
0: you know the the prevention aspect as you mentioned. Sure, and and you've mentioned so you mentioned you know vendor due diligence. Is there any is there any um, and I guess this goes to you, Lindsay, as well as you, Susan. You know just with with your um, knowledge on on the regulatory front, is there any you know guidance out there from the regulators that institutions should be looking at and, and following um, when considering due diligence.
2: I think the the one that comes immediately to mind, I'll jump in um, here. I think the one that immediately comes to mind is the new supervisory interagency guidance that came out this summer, uh, summer of 2023 on um, managing third-party risk. And what was really good about that guidance is it really um, talks through a third-party relationship life cycle. And there are five stages of that. Planning, due diligence, and third-party selection is item two. So this falls squarely in my mind in that bucket. Yep, Three is yep. contract negotiation. Four is ongoing monitoring. I would imagine, I would also say an element of this falls squarely there. I I can see Lindsay shaking her head. Yes, unfortunately our <laughs> listeners can't, but I can see her smiling and saying yes. So I think though, and then the fifth one being termination, right? Because there may be situations that arise that you might want to, as part of your negotiation, your contract negotiation, say this is an immediate termination piece. You want to be careful that you've got an Another place to go when that happens. Um, But I would say, you know, for sure it's in the due diligence phase um, as part of your selection. There should be some really good, robust questions around that. And oftentimes the business lines that are most involved in that are not necessarily the ones that always understand the technical aspects of what they're really asking and getting for information and so i'm a big one for saying partner 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 right Mm, bring in the right people whether you need to go the the step of getting a consultant in or not, but make sure within your own organization, there are the right people around the table that, you know, going into any due diligence or selection process, they each come to the table with the the respective best demonstrated, you know, important questions that they need to know and be able to say, I would sign off on this, right? Um, it's not just always about functionality or, or the bells and whistles of what you're getting, but every single area that that needs to be represented at the table to help you um, uh, mitigate risk situations like this. It's not going to address them all, but hopefully, it's going to mitigate many of them.
1: Yes, Susan, you're absolutely right. We typically recommend that the business unit that's going to be using that that software, that vendor, be involved, of course, and then also inviting, you know, the the legal team and the IT team to to participate as part of that vendor due diligence. Bef- before that contract is signed,
0: not after. I sensed the uh, the emphasis there, Lindsay, on before. Yes, before. <laughs> Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay, so here's my seasonal reference. It's like making a list and checking it twice. You know, you've got to like make uh, sure you go. you've got the right. <laughs> <laughs> the right. Okay, that's, that's the best I can do. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: great, Susan.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, <this is> great. <laughs> Awesome. Well well thank you so much, Lindsay. This was this this was a lot of fun getting to chat with you. I mean, I know we get to, to chat on a, a weekly basis with you, you know, right down the hall from me here in the office, but just to have this setting where we can uh geek out, so to speak, on on accounting and IT issues. Um it it's it's awesome. This this is a this is a Christmas gift to me, I guess. So thank you. <laughs>
1: thank you, David.
0: Um, and, and to all our listeners, you know, thank you so much for listening and really appreciate the support. Certainly, if there's any questions, reach out to Susan, Lindsay, or myself directly. Or again, we have that great Ask the Advisor feature available on the website. LinkedIn can also be a great way to connect with us. I, I wish you all the, the happiest of holidays. Hopefully, you get some time to, to relax and, and recharge. Um, and, and we look forward to chatting with you all again soon. Thank you very much.